Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together to worship God this morning, and it is lovely to see so many people visiting us. We do hope you will enjoy our time of worship together. Some words from Psalm 36. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both highborn and lowborn find refuge in the shadow of your wings. And so let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. We come to you, God, as small children come to a loving parent, straining to clamber onto your knee where we feel safe and secure, full of things that we want to tell you, longing for the warmth of your smile. As we snuggle into the safety of your embrace, we want to tell you about our week. Some of us have been very busy, rushing to and fro, trying to get everything done. Some of us have been very relaxed, enjoying time away from the routine of school or work. Some of us have been very worried waiting and watching to see how events unfolded. Some of us have been pottering along, life on an even keel. Nothing much to say, really. But in the stillness, in the silence, we tell you how this week has been for us. As we tell you about our week, as we look into your eyes and see only love, we find our defences lowering, our shame dissolving, our pride evaporating. Some of us have said or done things that we now regret. Some of us have not said or not done things we wish that we had. Some of us have thought more highly of ourselves than we should have. And some of us have not thought highly enough of ourselves. In the stillness, in the silence, we open our hearts to you, admitting our failings and faults.
as we feel the ache of regret slipping from us, as your smile reassures us of a new start. We find ourselves wanting to do and to be so much better. Some of us need new strength or new courage to face tough challenges. Some of us need the humility and grace to put right things which are wrong. Some of us need a new understanding about old ideas. Some of us need to meet you in a new way. In the stillness and in the silence, we wait for your touch. Loving God, Father of Jesus, we offer our prayers, our worship, and ourselves in his name. Amen. We seem to be especially low on numbers of children this morning, but that's fine because we are, as I remind you regularly, all God's children, so we're all invited to join in. I wonder if any of you have ever been to one of those fairs or fates when you're asked to guess how many sweets in a jar or a bottle, and the person who is the closest wins the sweets. So, you've got to join in, otherwise I'm going to be looking very stupid. How many sweets are there in my jar, do you think? In my bottle. 53. Thank you. That's the starter. 53. Okay. Thank you. 74. 74. 214. 87. 109. 90. 81. 100. Oh, you're coming thick and fast now, aren't they? Well, there are 142 sweets in my bottle. I think Miss Allen was the closest, so Miss Allen wins the sweets. <laughs> Not quite sure what she's going to do with them, but there we go. Now, a few more things to see if you know the answers to these. I learned this one from the radio this morning, but how many times a day do you think the average British person smiles? Fifteen? Not a bad, not a bad guess. It's on the right track. Twenty-two, or even better. Any, any other guesses? 26 times a day, on average, a British person smiles. And apparently, people in Europe perceive Brits as a smiley nation. So there you go. I always thought you were renowned for our stiff upper lip. But we're renowned for our smiles. So 26 times a day, on average, we will smile. And sometimes we just smile when we greet somebody to be kind of friendly. And sometimes we smile because we're happy. But I'm sure you all know that whatever the reason you smile, it actually makes you feel better. It releases feel-good hormones. So about 26 a day. Okay, this is a test for the people who actually listen to pop music. Approximately, how many bicycles are there in Beijing? Fantastic, you see. I know who listens to the same music as me. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing. 
This apparently is what the songwriter Mike Bat was told by his, in, his translator when he was visiting Beijing. And he took this away and he worked it into the Katie Melua, I think, song of the same name. There are nine million bicycles in Beijing. That's a fact. Well, it's a guess, actually, but there you go. The population of Scotland in June 2010, because this is the latest data I could get, but it won't be substantially different in uh, July 2011. 5.8 million? Other thought? 5.3 million? 6.2? I think Anita must have been reading the stats. Yep. Uh, this time last year, it was 5.2 million, and it's probably close to 5.3 million by now. Actually, Scotland is slowly growing, having been shrinking for a while. Number of hairs on a human head, average human head, not undergoing chemotherapy or suffering from follicle challenges. <laughs> Any ideas? 30,000? 30, more, actually. 50,000? More? Not quite, unless you've got very thick hair, but... <laughs> around about 100,000 hairs on an average human head. Some people will have a few more. Uh, I think, if I remember rightly, blonde-haired and fair-haired people tend to have slightly more hairs than dark and red-haired people, but it's also to do with how thick they are. Uh, <laughs> and the minister is a prime example of thick, so there we go. Can I go away and start again? Yes. How thick the hairs on the head are. <laughs> okay, well, just swiftly, before I dig that hole any deeper, uh, roughly, how many stars are there in the sky? Anybody got any idea? Uh, lots of shaking heads. Two billion? Infinite. In fact, nobody knows. It's impossible to count the number of stars in the sky. So some things we can count quite easily, and some things we can guesstimate. There's a lot of estimates. And I suppose the question I want us to start off by thinking about is, does it actually matter if we get this count accurate or not? Does it matter if we're out by a few? Surely, whether you've got 100,000 hairs on your head or 110,000 or 90,000 doesn't really matter, does it? Edith's going to bring us a Bible reading to help us to think about that a little more. The first reading is a Luke chapter 15, 1 to 7. One day, when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What does he do? He leaves the other 99 sheep in the pasture and goes looking for the one that got lost until he finds it. When he finds it, he is so happy that he puts it on his shoulders and carries it back home. 
Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who do not need to repent. So maybe the one does matter after all. Just got to hunt for my props here. Slightly unfortunate that we don't have some small people this morning because this would have worked better with small people, but never mind. I have a packet of felt-tip pens here. Leo, can you read for me what it says, how many it says are in there? Ten. Ten. And would you like to count them for me? Nine. So do you think that's okay that there's only nine felt tips in a packet that should have ten? Why do you think it's not okay? You're missing one, aren't you? Yeah, there's a colour missing from my packet of felt tips. So if I wanted that colour, I would be stuck. It's actually the orange one. Um, I do have that one hidden away somewhere. I also have a clock. Come jigsaw. But there's a problem with my clock. Come jigsaw. I don't have... Oops, no, I don't have two now. One's just fallen out. I've lost a number two, but thank you very much. I don't have a six on my clock. So if it gets to six o'clock, I won't know. So it actually matters that one is missing from my jigsaw. Now, I went to Thornton's the other day to buy some chocolates, and I was served by Katrina. So these were bought in Thornton's, and as you can see, they were gift-wrapped in Thornton's by Katrina. (laughs) Who would like to come and open my box of chocolates? I need somebody to, otherwise we're going to be here a very long time. Anybody going to open my box of chocolates for me? Thank you, Anita. You're a star. I get to eat them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So Anita is going to open this box of chocolates, which, as you can see, are professionally gift-wrapped by our resident Thornton's employee. They came highly recommended. I I asked Katrina which is the kind of chocolates that are most likely to be enjoyed by people at church, and she said, well, this is a good selection. It's got milk and plain and white in there. And and then I asked her to gift-wrap them because I thought it was nice to wrap them up if I was giving them to you as a gift. So there we go. To undo the seals. You can see they are well sealed up, these chocolates. That's good. So I need to say they look nice on the back. So uh, you like all of them. That's good. Fantastic. Okie dokie. Well, they'll perhaps leave those with you then. Yes, please delve in, otherwise it's uh, going to be... Are they fine for you? No. They're not fine. What's the matter? Someone's been there before her. <laughs> One of the chocolates is missing. The one out of the middle is missing. 
Now, I have to confess, it's quite handy having a friend working in Thornton's, because you, uh, you can go in and say, this is what I want to do. I want to buy a box of chocolates with one missing. But imagine if I had actually bought those chocolates with one missing, and that was how it really was, and that was my favorite flavor. I would be really, really, really disappointed. I have to say, the one in the middle tasted very nice when I scuffed it. That's the one, yep. White chocolate, milk chocolate, and dark chocolate in layers. It was fantastic. But clearly, you see, it does matter if one's missing. It's okay for the government to say there are roughly 5.3 million people in Scotland. It's okay for a translator to say there are around about 9 billion, that by million, sorry, bicycles in Beijing. But actually, in some situations, the one that is missing is really important. <clears throat> Second reading is from Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus called a child, made him stand in front of them and said, I assure you that unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. And whoever welcomes in my name one such child as this welcomes me. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied round his neck and be drowned in the deep sea. How terrible for the world that there are things that make people lose their faith. Such things will always happen, but how terrible for the one who causes them. If your hand or your foot makes you lose your faith, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life without a hand or a foot than to keep both hands and both feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye makes you lose your faith, take it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with only one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you don't despise any of these little ones. They are angels in heaven, I tell you, are always in the presence of my Father in heaven. What do you think a man does who has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost? He will leave the other ninety-nine grazing in the hillside and go and look for the lost sheep. When he finds it, I tell you, he feels far happier over this one sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not get lost. In just the same way, your Father in heaven does not want any of these little ones to be lost. If your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault, but do it privately, just between yourselves. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. But if he will not listen to you, take one or two other persons with you, so that every accusation may be upheld by the testimony of two or more witnesses, as the scripture says. And if you will not listen to them, then tell the whole thing to the church. Finally, if you will not listen to the church, treat him as though he were a pagan or a tax collector. And so I tell all of you, what you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and what you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And I tell you more, whenever two of you on earth agree about anything you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, I am there with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, if my brother keeps on singing against me, 
How many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? No, not seven times, answered Jesus, but 70 times seven. Because the kingdom of heaven is like this. Once there was a king who decided to check on his servants' accounts. He had just begun to do so when one of them was brought in who owed him millions of pounds. The servant did not have enough to pay his debt, so the king ordered him to be sold as a slave with his wife and his children and all that he had in order to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you everything. The king felt sorry for him, so he forgave him the debt and let him go. Then the man went out and met one of his fellow servants who owed him a few pounds. He grabbed him and started showing him. Pay back what you owe me, he said. His fellow servant fell down and begged him. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown into jail until he should pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were very upset and went to the king and told him everything. So he's called his servant in. You worthless slave, he said. I forgave you the whole amount you owed me just because you asked me to. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. The king was very angry and he sent the servant to jail to be punished until he should pay back the whole amount. And Jesus concluded, That is how my Father in heaven will treat every one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Thank you very much. Now, if anybody really doesn't want to listen to me and wants to go and make a picture at the back, that's absolutely fine. But I'm guessing most of you will put up with listening to me talk. Have you ever wondered why there are four Gospels in the Bible and not one? And do you ever wonder why the stories that they tell are the way they tell them? One of the postulates, that's a posh word for ideas, of biblical scholars is that each of the gospel writers aimed the gospel at a real-life community of faith. So the author of Matthew was writing for a real church that he imagined, and the writer of John was writing for a real community that he imagined, and so on. They weren't just writing for somebody they had a picture of in their head. They were writing for real people facing real challenges of living out their faith in a real context. You have to remember that in those days, you didn't just go to a bookshop and and buy books. There was no such thing as publishing. Scrolls were copied out painstakingly by hand and would be read aloud in a community. You wouldn't probably own your own copy of something. So the stories that were chosen to be included or excluded were very important. It was a massive decision to say, well, what is it this group of people need to hear about Jesus? What is the context in which this gospel is going to be read and heard? And we need to remember that the early Christians would probably only have had one of the four gospels, if any, For a long time, they just had remembered stories that they told each other. But as they came to be written down, they might have just had Matthew, or just had Mark, or just had Luke or John. It was about 300 years before they were collected together into what we know as the Bible. 
So this morning we've heard two stories about sheep. And there's a subtlety between them that doesn't particularly come well in the good news translation we heard this morning. It doesn't matter. Um, In Luke's story, the sheep gets lost. And in Matthew's story, the sheep goes astray. It wanders. There's a subtle difference which can affect how we understand them. That's not important because I'm choosing to focus on Matthew's sheep parable in its broader context. That's why we heard that long reading which was brought so brilliantly for us, the whole of Matthew chapter 18. And I made that choice for two reasons. Firstly, there are lots of verses in Matthew 18 that get quoted out of context. Things about stumbling blocks, things about gouging out eyes, things about two or three gathering together. Lots of things that people just quote without thinking where they were originally told. But also, for anybody who's into Baptist ecclesiology, which sadly I am, um, this is one of the passages of scripture that is used a lot in thinking about what Baptist church life might look like. Matthew 18 can be understood as referring to life in the community of the kingdom, or at least that as experienced in the local church. Quite clearly, it's not a rule book, it's not a constitution, it's not prescribing how you should order your affairs, it's not a set of policies, it's not an instruction manual, it doesn't even tell you how to go about creating any of those things. What it actually is, is a collection of material from the teaching of Jesus, which is useful to the community of faith in thinking through how its life together might be ordered. If we're honest, it does at first sight seem a bit of an odd collection of stories. There's not one line of argument running all the way through it. And yet, by God's grace, it does hang together and make some kind of sense for us. It covers a lot of ground. I could preach an awful lot of sermons out of that one chapter of the Bible. But it seemed right that this morning we should spend a little bit of time listening for God speaking to us through that chapter, and I'm going to look at it in a number of little sections. The chapter begins with Jesus taking a child and standing it, in the Greek, in the middle of the people. We translate it as he, because that feels so much nicer to our Western sensibilities. But in first century Roman Empire, children were it's. They had no status. In the Roman world, they were considered often as savages that had to be tamed. They might not be given a name until they were five or six years old. And let's face it, a lot of Roman names are more like numbers than names as we know it. This isn't a bit of teaching about children precisely. It's about status. The Jews had a better view of children than the Romans did, but even so, the children had no status, no value. Things that we take for granted nowadays, the basic human rights of a child enshrined in the Declaration of Human Rights, the right to safety, the right to health, the right to basic education, they didn't exist, let alone the bizarre 21st century concept of pester power 
that is exploited by the toy manufacturers. When Jesus took a child and stood it in the middle of the people, it was quite a shocking thing to do. And Jesus said, that is how you should see yourselves within this community of faith. As the lowest of the low, as somebody unimportant. There's no place in the community of God's kingdom for self-importance, selfish ambition, self-aggrandizement, arrogance. Everybody has as much or as little worth as everybody else. We all become the little ones of what follows in the rest of that chapter. Now, just before I move on, this is not advocating doormat theology. This is not saying you're all rubbish, you're useless, you're miserable sinners, blah, blah, blah. It's not saying that. What it's saying is the kingdom of God's people is a place where nobody should be going around thinking, well, actually, I'm better than you. We are all as unimportant and as important as each other. And actually, that's part of what the parables of the sheep remind us. The one sheep out of the hundred is important enough that the shepherd goes and looks for it. The second point, then, having thought about status, is about mutual support. There's that long section about what in the correct translation from the Greek is stumbling blocks. Um, In the good news, it's rendered as things that cause us to lose faith. In some other translations, it's rendered as things that call us to sin. And what this passage seems to me to be saying, if we read it carefully, there is plenty in the world at large that can be a stumbling block to us, things that can trouble us, things that can trip us up. And if that's not bad enough, The church can do the same thing. Now, whether we're talking about sin or loss of faith or both or a combination or a bit more doesn't really matter. What matters is how we think about stumbling and our attitudes towards it within the community of faith. What it seems to me to say is that not one of us can ever take the moral high ground with another. I don't have the right to say to you, that's absolutely wrong, you are beyond the pale. And you don't have the right to say it to me. Because that arrogance could be a stumbling stone that could tip you over the edge and drive you away from Jesus. All of us are capable of tripping up and falling on our own, and of tripping each other up by the things we say or don't say, do or don't do. This is one of the most scary passages in the whole New Testament. And what fascinates me, when we get a bit biblical literal, as we sometimes do, never in 2,000 years has the church cut off people's hands, cut off people's feet, or gouged out people's eyes for what they did. We don't take it literally. We take it metaphorically. We think that this is the things that cause us to stumble. We cut ourselves off from, not our physical body. 
But actually, it's not even just about that. It's about looking out for each other, about me not doing things or saying things that would trip you up, and you not doing or saying things that would trip me up. We have to look out for each other. We have to be part of this community, seeking the truth of Jesus. And then, having thought about status and about mutual support, we go on to hear the parable of the wandering sheep. And this reminds us that everybody matters. There is nobody who is unimportant. One person goes astray. The shepherd goes off and seeks to bring that person back. And in that passage, in that story, we are told one very clear thing. It is God's desire that none be lost. No matter how far people stray, no matter what tangles they get into, no matter what we might think, God still values them. And God will never give up. And then we have that lovely image of the rejoicing when that one is found. Well, that all sounds fine and dandy, doesn't it? We should be a community where everybody is valued as of equal status. We should look out for each other. And we should remember that everybody is important. Nobody can be just forgotten about. But how do you actually bring that to be in your everyday life as a community of faith? Because let's face it, we disagree on things. Sometimes people annoy us. Sometimes I annoy you. Sometimes I say stupid things, like thick when I mean thick hair, whatever. How do you live together as God's community, the kingdom of faith? The first thing that's picked up is how you handle discord in that community. What do you do if somebody offends you or if you think that they are in the wrong We have a very simple model, a very sensible model, and it exists in lots of churches today. First, you try to sort it out between the two of you. If that fails, you involve one or two other people to act as arbiters. And if that fails, well, this is what Jesus said. Treat them as though they were pagans or tax collectors. If you pick up most traditional Bible commentaries, that will say, that means excommunicate them. Kick them out. If you can't sort it out, if they're a troublemaker, just kick them out. But hang on a minute. Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus went and had dinner with them. Jesus welcomed them. How would Jesus treat the person who just pushes us to our wit's end? How would Jesus be towards that person who we are convinced is wrong? The same way that he was towards the tax collectors and the sinners and the pagans of his day. Secondly, how do you decide what is or is not permitted within the community of faith? If we read that passage carefully... It's actually quite shocking what it says because it seems that full authority is located in the local church. 
albeit guided by God's spirit. The where two or three are gathered in God's name is not what you say when you've got a prayer meeting and only three of you turn up. Oh, it's all right, where two or three are gathered, blah, blah, blah. It'll be fine. That's actually not where that context is. This is in the context of the challenge of authentic disciples wrestling with issues that might be difficult. Issues of justice, issues of doctrine, issues of inclusion and exclusion, issues of politics, all these things that you have to wrestle with. God is there in the midst of it. And it actually says in scripture that the local church has the power and authority under God to bind and to loose, to permit and to prohibit, not just on earth, but also in heaven. I have a suspicion that we all need to go away and think about just what that means. Because sometimes we're too ready to think it means X, or maybe it means Y. We are trusted by God to work out what it means to be part of that community. That's a privilege. It's also a responsibility. And then lastly, with that uh, parable about the unjust servant, the unforgiving servant, what about forgiveness within the community of faith? How long do you go on forgiving someone? How many times can we make the same mistake? How many times can the same wrong thing be done? Now, forgiveness is complicated, and we can't go into all that that means today, because there are important things about repentance and restitution. I'm not disputing that. But the broad mandate here is to perpetual and continual forgiveness. It seems that there should be no last chances. You go on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And that parable right at the end is quite a stern one for those of us who think we're on the inside. Those of us who are the forgiven servant. If you expect God to be merciful to you, says Jesus, then make sure you show mercy to others. Because if you don't, well, you know how the story goes. This has all gone a long way from a story about sheep. It was a story that was told to make people think. It was a story that had a context then, and it has a context now. It's a story that should help us to shape our community of faith as a place of hope, a place of welcome, a place of openness, a place of forgiveness, and a place of love. What do you think a man does who has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost? What does the story say? How do we hear it? And now let's come to God with our prayers for others, our prayers of intercession. We pray together. God, who entered our world as a peasant child 
and lived as a stateless refugee. We bring to you now in prayer individuals and people groups who have little or no status in society, whose intrinsic worth is overlooked or denied. We pray for all who are homeless, whether they are rough sleepers or sofa surfers, many of them victims of life struggles, asking that they would find help and support to escape from the cycles that ensnare them. We pray for asylum seekers, for illegal immigrants and for migrant workers, each leaving behind all that is familiar to seek safety or prosperity in faraway lands with strange cultures and often hostile legal systems, asking that they will find freedom and welcome rather than rejection or suspicion. God, who in Christ works like a good shepherd, perpetually seeking wandering or lost sheep, carrying them to safety and freeing them to live again, we bring to you now individuals and people groups we think have gone astray. We pray for all who work in the news media, where the temptation to corruption or underhand means of generating material is very real and present. Asking that they will learn again what it is to be honourable and truthful, serving the common good, not merely the bottom line. We pray for those whose lifestyles disturb us, those who are violent or abusive, those who depend on illegal substances or who abuse legal substances, those who are snared by the sex industry or who, in loneliness, are promiscuous, that they would find a way to wholeness, learning to love themselves as you love them, to live a life of fullness. God, whose nature is to forgive without limit, and who in Christ reconciles all to yourself, we bring to you now our ongoing need for forgiveness. We bring to you our unforgiveness, the grudges we hold, the bitterness that binds us, and we ask you to free us once and for all. We bring to you our self-righteousness, the conviction that we alone are right and that we are entitled to condemn others on your behalf, asking that you would humble us. We bring to you our stumbling, the ways that we have tripped up or caused others to trip, turning them or ourselves away from you rather than towards you. 
asking that you would lift them and us back to our feet, dust us off and set us on our way once more. God in community, Father, Son and Spirit, we bring to you now our prayers for those in the communities of which we are part, naming silently in our hearts those known to us. To those who are sick, please grant wholeness. To those who are weary, please give rest. To those who are anxious, please give peace. <clears throat> to those who are angry, please bring release. each of us. Please grant us what it is that we need from you. Eternal God, whose love is immeasurable, accept these prayers offered in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>